This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. So we're going to turn back to 1 Samuel, going back to our series in the Old Testament. Um, You know, I spent some time this week trying to find a good text to begin this new year with, and it turns out that what we had already planned in our series fits so well with what I believe that God wants to share with us today. And so we're in the first book of Samuel, and it's okay if you turn to your index in your Bible to find where that book is. Probably not one of the most well-thumbed books in your Bible. And we're in 1 Samuel chapter 7. But before we read, I want to talk a little bit about revival. Because for anyone who hungers after the presence of God, there's nothing we desire more and pray for more desperately than for God to descend in power and fill his church and this world with his glory. And there comes a point where our own capacities and skills and resources come to an end and we realize only if God shows up do we have hope for ourselves and for the world. And when you start reading these accounts of how the Holy Spirit has shown up throughout church history, you start seeing common threads, people crying out in prayer in small groups, more and more people seeking the face of God. And along with this desire for revival comes a deep brokenheartedness over our sin and the things that never really seemed to bother us before, we, we begin to feel this deep grief and sadness and shame over, and we start to cry out to God. There's a wonderful account of revival spreading in Manchuria, northern China, in 1908. This revival began in Wales, and it spread to Korea, and the Koreans began praying for their neighbors in China. And then the fire revival began to spread there as well. And here is a contemporary account of what happened. The place was crowded to the door, and tense, reverent attention sat on every face. The very singing was vibrant with new joy and vigor. The people knelt for prayer, silent at first, but soon one here and another there began to pray aloud. The voices grew and gathered volume and blended into a great wave of united supplication that swelled till it was almost a roar and died down again into an undertone of weeping. Now I understood why the floor was so wet. It was wet with pools of tears. The very air seemed electric. I speak in all seriousness, and strange thrills coursed up and down one's body. Then above the sobbing, in strained, choking tones, a man began to make public confession. Words of mine will fail to describe the awe and terror and pity of these confessions. It was not so much the enormity of the sins disclosed or the depths of iniquity sounded that shocked one. It was the agony of the penitent, his groans and cries and voices shaken with sobs. It was the sight of men forced to their feet and in spite of their struggles, impelled as it seemed to lay bare their hearts that moved one and brought the smarting tears to one's own eyes. Never have I experienced anything more heartbreaking, more nerve-wracking than the spectacle of those souls stripped naked before their fellows. If we are seriously hungering after God, if our prayers for his presence echo the real longing of our souls and aren't just words that we feel we ought to say, we will find the Holy Spirit leading us through deep repentance and confession of sin. It's the way back to God, and it is the only way back to God. There are no alternate routes. Repentance and repentance alone brings us back to the heart of the Father. 
And in the book of 1 Samuel, we have one of the most striking accounts of corporate repentance and confession and revival and a manifestation of the power of God. So let's read this chapter together. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to the word of the Lord. And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came up and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. Before I go on, I should give you some background in this book in case you're not up to speed. Chapter 1, Baron Hannah prays and God gives her a son, Samuel. Chapter 2, we see the utter wretchedness and spiritual decay of the uh, priesthood of that time. Chapter 3, God calls Samuel. Samuel answers, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And God raises up Samuel as a prophet who hears and shares the word of the Lord. And then strangely, Samuel recedes into the background, and we don't hear from him for three chapters. In chapter 4, Israel goes into battle with the Philistines. They are, to their shock, defeated. The ark is captured. In chapter 5, the ark goes on a tour of the Philistines. The Philistine gods are defeated. God shows forth his power. And in chapter 6, the ark returns to the land of Israel. So, that's where we are in the book. And now the ark has been brought up to the city of Kiriath-Jearim. And they consecrate, they consecrated Abinadab's son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jearim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Even though the ark has returned to Israel, clearly things are not well in the land. And you may recall from the previous chapter that when the ark was brought back, people looked into the ark or gazed upon it and were struck dead by the holiness of God. And the villagers exclaimed, who can stand before this holy God? And now the presence of God in their midst is a difficulty and a problem. Just because God, in the form of the ark, has returned does not mean everything is okay now. There are some 
estrangement, some distance between God and his people. And we begin to see in this chapter that it wasn't just a problem with Eli and his corrupt, greedy, lustful sons who were serving as priests. The rot has spreaded to all the people in the land. And they begin to realize that they are far from God. And this realization doesn't seem to happen immediately. A long time passes. Years go by. Years and years. Two whole decades could go by. And then the people begin to lament after the Lord. Somehow in their hearts, a homesickness for God begins to form. And this is the first kernel of repentance. The word most often used for repent in the Old Testament is to turn. It's one of the most common verbs in the Hebrew Bible, to turn back to God, to return to God. And going back to God implies that he is our source, our origin, our true home where we have always belonged. And of course, this is true for all human beings because we are created by the hand of God, created to be in friendship with him, to walk with him in the cool of the day in the garden. But it's especially true for the covenant people of God, whom he has redeemed and rescued with his mighty hand. And they have sworn to be faithful to God as he has sworn to be faithful to them. But then they begin to wander off into other paths. And now, for some reason, there is a longing after God, a homesickness for God, a painful sense of God's absence. And this is where all true repentance begins. A sense that something is amiss. There's something missing. All is not well. And here I am having my fill of my sin and my idols and my false worship. But there's something within me that hungers and thirsts after God. And here is where true repentance begins. A longing and a lamentation after God. And then... At this moment, Samuel, the prophet, appears. It's amazing how you read in chapter chapter 3, Samuel hears from God, and it says, And the word of God came to Samuel for all Israel, and then he goes silent, seemingly, for 20 years, at least in the record of this book of Samuel. And it must have been a long time time of waiting for this man of God. Waiting for the people to begin to hunger after their covenant Lord. And this is all the more remarkable, I think, because Samuel is such a young man. You know, they say one of the mistakes that all young pastors make when they begin to pastor a church is bringing change in too quickly because we're young and impatient and we want to get stuff done. But Samuel, above all, is a man who listens to the voice of God. And for 20 years, he does not get permission from God to gather the people together and address them about their sin. Do you know what? You can't make people repent before they're ready. And Samuel could have shouted until his voice was hoarse, but the people would not have listened. There is a time to pluck the fruit, but you have to wait until it's ripe. And Samuel must wait until the people begin to lament and grieve for this God who seems to be missing among them. And so, although the repentance begins with this sense of missing God, what follows up immediately is a word from the Lord. 
God speaks. Because repentance is not ultimately about me seeking God. But when I seek God, I discover that he has been seeking me for a long time. And even this longing within the hearts of the people surely is a work of the Spirit drawing them back to their covenant God. And now Samuel, the man of God, the right man at the right place at the right time, speaks to all the house of Israel. And he says, look, if you are returning to the Lord your God with all your heart, if, well, it's got to manifest itself in some concrete action. These people have this unfocused and vague desire after God, but they're still holding on to their idols. They're wavering. They're halting. They're staggering between two opinions. We miss God. We long for God. We wish God was among us again to rescue us from the hand of these foreign oppressors. But we're not quite ready to say no to all those idols that we love spending time with. And Samuel, with the voice of God, comes and gives direction to their repentance. It's not enough just to sit there and feel vaguely bad about yourself. But God comes and says, if you want to return to me with all of your heart, here is the path. There's always a way back to God. Story is told of a tourist in Australia who pulled over and asked someone how to get to the Sydney Opera House. And the man scratched his head and said, well, I I wouldn't recommend starting from here. But wherever we find ourselves, there is a way back to God. And there's no place so deep and so dark that God does not provide a path back to him should we choose to take it. There is always a route back for God. And this God who speaks and commands and warns is also a God who invites. And so our repentance begins with the sense of hope. God wants us back. God wants you back. He wants you home with him again. And he's not waiting in silence for you to figure it out yourself and somehow grope your way back to him. He speaks through his word, giving clear instructions about how you can find your way back to God. And so Samuel gives them three clear instructions for concrete action. Number one is this. Put away those false gods those foreign gods. Those gods are aliens. They're not your true home, and you don't, belong to, you don't belong to them. Those are things coming from the outside. And step number one is to take these gods and sweep them off of, your, off of your shelf and throw them in the bin and put them as far away from yourself as possible. And these gods they were worshiping are called the Ashtaroth in here. And this is named after this god Astarte, who was the goddess of war and of fertility. And worshiping this goddess involved the filthiest acts of heterosexual and homosexual depravity. They had sacred prostitutes. And you can imagine this was a great attraction for going to worship this god and indulging the basest desires of the flesh. In fact, the way that this God is written here, the Hebrews took the consonants from the name Astarte, and they took the vowels from the word for shameful, and they put them together to make this new word, Ashtaroth. This idol is so filthy and disgusting, we're not even going to name her. This is a shameful thing. And if you are serious about repentance, if this is not just some vague wish, but you really do want to come home to God, you need to put these idols as far away from yourself as possible. That's the very first thing that has to be done. Because as long as you're still giving yourself to these things on the side, you can have no dealings with the living God. 
It's God or nothing. And he's not going to compete with these idols. And I don't know what foreign God has tempted you away from the covenant Lord this year. But if you really are longing to come home to God, the very first step is to thrust those things from you. And until you shove them away from yourself as far as you can, there is no returning to God. That's step number one. Step number two is this. Direct your heart to the Lord. Literally, fix your heart, your entire inner person on God. And it speaks to this tenacious commitment to be faithful and loyal to God, whatever may come. Unswerving loyalty to God. No half measures, but I'm fixing and focusing my entire person on God. I've been married for 12 years, and probably within five days of Michelle and I dating, I knew this is the woman I'm going to marry. No doubts in my mind anymore. And from that point on, my question was not whether or not I want this person. I was thinking, I'm going to make her my wife, whatever happens. And I was locked in and focused on pursuing this woman and making her my own. And we got engaged on Montauk Point at the, um, the, uh, the, the, the very tip of Long Island. And we were having lunch and she was eating chicken nuggets. And she was talking about her own doubts and uncertainties of the relationship. And I was thinking, I've got the ring in my pocket. I have a letter I've written to her. I'm not swerving from the way at all. However she feels, I'm going to get her to marry me. Total locked-in commitment to this person. And this is what God is asking from us. We're not testing him out. We're not weighing him to see whether he is going to work out for us so we can perhaps return him for a full 100% refund. We are totally committed and locked in on God. And thirdly, Samuel directs the people to serve God only. There is a kind of repentance that people have where we feel ashamed of these things that enslave us. There are things we don't like about ourselves, things that embarrass us in front of other people, habits that we find humiliating. And we work hard to get rid of those things, not because we want to offer ourselves in service to God, but so that we can be more free to serve ourselves. And then we're just clearing the house of one demon to invite seven more into us. Samuel is saying, if you're going to repent, it involves offering yourself in service to God. You've got to serve somebody. So choose this day whom you will serve. If you're going to serve these idols, fine. Go and serve these idols. But if you want to serve God, you must serve him and serve him only. Because God is a jealous God, and he requires exclusive loyalty. No man can serve two masters. It's going to be one or the other. And so if you want to come home to God and experience his fatherly embrace and intimacy with him and his family, it involves surrendering yourself in service to him. God, I don't belong to myself. I belong to you, and I'm giving myself back to you in your service. So Samuel says, if you're serious about repentance, if this just isn't some words you're uttering, here's what you can do. Put away your idols, fix your heart on God, and commit to serving him only. And if you do that, God promises that he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. God promises to show up and help all repentant people. If you want to trust your idols to deliver you, if you want to trust Baal, the storm god, and Astarte, the, the god of warfare, to deliver you from these enemies, fine. 
Let them take care of you. See what happens. But if you return to God, he promises that he will gather you under his wings and protect you from anything that will harm you or destroy you if you repent. And so this word of hope is held out to Israel. God is not calling for their repentance so he can grind them in the dust because God loves making us feel terrible about ourselves and he wants to suck every ounce of self-hatred out of us. God wants to help us and he wants to be our God, but he can't and will not do that as long as we're clinging on to something else. Let go of these things, Samuel says. They can't save you seize onto God with both hands. And Samuel's word, his call, his summons for repentance goes out into all the land. And amazingly, the people respond and they put away the balls and the ashtoreth and they serve the Lord only, verse 4 says. What an amazing work of God in the hearts of these faithless and wandering people. But that's not quite enough. There's more that needs to be done. And so Samuel calls the people to a public assembly. We're all going to gather together at Mizpah, this um, high piece of ground known as the Watchtower just north of Jerusalem, and the whole nation is going to assemble so that we can be reconciled to God. It's about more than just a change of behavior, necessary though that is. We want a restored relationship with God, and we need to make sure that we renew our covenant with him. And Samuel promises, if we gather together, I will pray for you. I will intercede for you. I will lead you back into the presence of God. And so they gather at this place, and they begin to fast. And fasting is a sign of hunger for God. God, we long for you. And we want you more than even the most basic necessities of life. The deepest hunger we have is for your presence. And to show you how seriously and desperately we long for you, we're not going to let any food touch our lips. And then they take water and pour it out before the Lord. And no one's quite clear what the symbolism of this action means, but I think in connection with the fasting, they're also taking the cool, refreshing water they otherwise would have drunk, and they pour it out before the Lord as a second sign of their desperation for him. And then they confess their sin to God. Verse 6, we have sinned against the Lord. And true repentance, true returning to God, means that we we name the shameful truth about ourselves. The things we don't dare to tell others about, the things we try to keep at the edge of our mind and are too cowardly even to say to ourselves, we must name before the Lord. It's no surprise to God, of course, he knows, but it's vital for us to name our sin before God. In order for this thing to be taken away from us, There's a paradox here because the only way to get rid of sin is to own it yourself, to pull it close to yourself and say, this is the terrible thing that I have done. And it's the most simple and straightforward of confessions. We have sinned against the Lord. No defense no excuses, no extenuating circumstances offered. This is a real confession before God, which we find very difficult to do. You know those stories that are not really stories? Ah, I'm sorry if my joke hurt your feelings. The sorry if, and you're really saying, 
I'm sorry that you are so overly sensitive. I'm sorry if you felt hurt that I punched you in the face, but it's really your fault. And I, honestly, you were being quite annoying and I had good reasons for doing so. But if you need this confession, fine. Fine, I'll say the words, whatever it takes. But really, it's not my fault or not really. But here, they open themselves up totally before God. Without excuses, without defenses, they name their shame. We have sinned against the Lord. And notice in that brief confession how sin is described not as a personal failure to achieve my own standard of success, but sin is named as a personal betrayal of God. My sin never floats around disconnected. It's always something that happens against God. I have broken relationship with God. I have grieved him. I have offended him. I have brought shame upon him. Against you, against you only have I sinned, David will say later on in the 51st Psalm. We have sinned against the Lord. And they don't blame God for the fact that they are at the mercy of their enemies. They openly confess this is our fault. This is our problem. God, we have sinned against you. And they utter these words together. Because no confession is rarely just a personal matter between you and God. Here it's the whole nation being gathered together to say, in solidarity in their sin, this is all of us. We've all been involved in this. And we're coming before God together to seek his face. We have sinned against the Lord. You know, there's something about coming before God this way that, dare I say, disarms him. Because it's an act of trust in any relationship to be this honest with someone about your own failing. In my own marriage, it took me a long time before I could confess to Michelle, I have sinned against you in these ways, and I've hurt you and offended you in these ways. To open yourself up to a person without defense, bearing your neck to their blow, is an act of great trust. And when we do that before God, and it's something only the Holy Spirit can prompt in our hearts, when we do that before God, instead of striking the blow that we deserve, he draws near in mercy, and he's disarmed by our trust in him. So here are the people gathered before God, fasting, praying, seeking God. And at this moment of national repentance, a new crisis emerges. Because the Philistine leaders here, there's something afoot in their vassal state Israel. No doubt they have spies and they have informers and they're very leery of public gatherings. And here's all Israel gathered together and the Philistine lords realize we've got to march up right now and squash this thing before it develops into something further. So here are the people gathered in this exposed place, not having eaten, not having drunk water, probably without their weapons. And the Philistine army, these brutal overlords are marching up against them. And we're told that when the people hear of this, they're afraid of the Philistines. You know, if you go back to the Battle of Aphek in chapter 4, when Israel was decimated by the Philistines, they weren't afraid at that point. It was the Philistines who were afraid. But the Israelites were filled with confidence. A confidence, it turned out, that was badly misdirected. Because they said, look, oh, it's not a problem. We've got the ark back at Shiloh. Bring the ark. God will save us. Nothing to worry about. And now, 20 years later, the Israelites have been cured of that kind of presumption on God. They realize we don't have God in our back pocket that we can pull out any time we want 
as our trump card to defeat anything that comes against us. There's something bad that's about to happen, and we are afraid, and that makes us desperate to cry out to God. There is a kind of confidence that the people of God have that is foolish and offensive to God. When we feel whatever problem arises, we can handle it. We have the capacity. We have the resources. There's no need to pray. There's no need to seek God. We can take care of this. That is a dangerous place for the church to be. And maybe when we begin to fe- we, when we begin to feel afraid and we feel things coming against us individually or together that we realize are too much for us and we are naked and we are defenseless and there's nothing we can do, perhaps that is a very healthy place for us to be because it prompts us to cry out in desperation to God. And the people go through Samuel. This is so interesting. They look up to Samuel as this man of God who hears the word of the Lord, and they say, Samuel, please, we're begging you, don't stop crying out to God until he answers our prayers and saves us from the hand of our enemies. Samuel the prophet is also Samuel the intercessor. And he's the one who's leading the people in repentance, and therefore it's his task to lead them now in seeking the face of God. And Samuel prays, and he also takes a lamb. He makes a sacrifice before God, this burnt offering. And God hears his prayer, and even as Samuel is offering up this lamb, and the smoke is rising to heaven, the Philistines attack, and they charge uphill to this watchtower place. And God answers their prayer, and thunder sounds forth from the sky. And it causes the Philistines to go into a panic. And they turn, and they run downhill for their lives. And at that moment, the people of Israel surge after them, grabbing whatever they can to bring down the Philistines whom God has given into their hands. God is a God who answers prayer. And what's so striking about the way he does it is that here is Ashtaroth, the god of war, the goddess of war, and Baal, who's the storm god, the god of storm and the god of war. And God is saying, I'm actually better at those things than those false gods that you trusted. You want victory? You want thunder and lightning from heaven? I will give it to you in a far more powerful way than these foreign gods could ever offer you. And God shows up. And God shows up immediately. You know, when someone has offended you and done terrible things to you for a long time, and then they come back asking for for, for forgiveness, we like to test that, don't we? We want to, we're not quite ready to release our resentment, our very justified resentment against this person. And we'd like to fold our arms and step back and let them soak in their trouble for a little bit. But not the Lord God. The moment his wandering people return, God springs into action. God never delays keeping his covenant obligations. And he had promised the people, if you repent, you will be delivered. They've repented, and now they will be delivered. That's the way that God works. He's always faithful to keep his promises. And so the people of the Philistines flee. They're struck down by the pursuing Israelites. And then at the farthest point of the Israelite advance, Samuel sets up a stone, a stone of remembrance. Lest we ever forget how God showed up. And this stone is called Ebenezer, the stone of help. And it's put down with this inscription, till this point, God, the Lord, has helped us. Till this point, the Lord has helped us. Now that is a very good inscription. 
to write over our own lives as we come to the end of this year. Till now, the Lord has helped us. I don't know your story, but here you are sitting in front of me, and I know that till this point, the Lord has helped you. Whatever storms, whatever troubles you've been through this year, here we are at the end of December, and we need to remind ourselves, till this point, God has helped us. Now, there's something striking about this name Ebenezer because we also encountered it in chapter 4. The Philistines were gathered at Aphek, and Israel was gathered at another place called Ebenezer, too far away to be this place. And there they had been roundly defeated. And that name Ebenezer must have felt very bitter in their mouths for the next 20 years. The site of their defeat was named Stone of Help, but God didn't help us. We trusted in him, we carted the ark out, and we were decimated by the Philistines. Surely God has failed us. And now Samuel is redeeming this name. He's taken the name of their previous defeat, and now it becomes the name of victory. Because when you belong to God, even your defeats become victories in him. And I don't mean that by way of pious, positive thinking. God had always been the helper of Israel. And even their defeat at the hand of the Philistines 20 years ago was God helping them to a more intimate relationship with himself. They needed to learn that you can't just cart God around and use him as a super weapon against your enemies. God is not like that. He wants you to come into a relationship with him as the living God. God has helped us all throughout this year, all throughout your life. God has always been helping you, whether or not the Holy Spirit has given you the eyes to perceive it or not. God is for us. He is always for us. He doesn't switch back and forth the way we do. God is always and entirely for us. It is remarkable in this chapter how central Samuel becomes. Samuel is the prophet who speaks forth this powerful word of repentance. And Samuel is the priest and the intercessor who prays and offers sacrifices to make the people acceptable to God. And in this chapter, Samuel appears for the first time as the judge, the leader, the one who dispenses justice and puts things in order. And he goes around on his circuit, this little circuit north of Jerusalem every year, putting things in order and making sure that this crisis of repentance and deliverance is followed up on and consolidated. And it should remind us that repentance is not a work that we are doing on our own. The, the Jewish people celebrate the Day of Atonement, the festival of Yom Kippur, but of course there's no longer any animal sacrifices in Jerusalem since the temple was destroyed. And so in the Jewish liturgy to this day for this feast, the central words are this, Repentance will turn away the severe decree. Instead of sacrifice, we have repentance. But that is not the kind of repentance Scripture speaks of. Our repentance is not how we turn away the anger of God against our sin. It's not a work that we do or a way of achieving favor with God. It remains a sacrifice of the Lamb. So Jesus is the greater and truer Samuel who leads us, his people, back in repentance to God, who brings us home to God for the first time or again and again in our lives. Jesus is the prophet who speaks the powerful word of God. He is the one whose ear is always open to the voice of his Father. 
And he faithfully speaks that word into our lives. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the words of Jesus are powerful words. And his command to repent, like God's command to bring light out of darkness, brings forth what it commands in our hearts by a mystery of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the book of Acts says, is exalted as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel. Repentance is a gift that comes through the voice of Jesus in our lives. When we were children, we had a dog. He was part German shepherd and part husky. And this dog was a bolter. Some dogs just love to run away. And he was supposed to be on his chain guarding the back door, but if we ever took this dog off the chain, or we let go of the leash, the dog would be gone. And first he would sort of gently lope along the road, looking over his shoulder at us, at us. and then when we started running after him, he would increase his speed just ahead of our own. We wouldn't see him for hours until he returns back to the gate by the back door. And then one time this dog vanished and did not return. And several days went by and we wondered, maybe we're never going to see our dog again. And then one of my siblings, I think it was my younger brother, went just to check the wooded ravine behind our house. And there he found our dog, and somehow the leash dragging behind him had gotten wrapped around a tree, very tightly. I don't think there was even enough slack for this dog to lie down. And when he saw my brother, he wagged his tail, but he was too thirsty even to bark. And my brother unwound the leash and brought the dog home, and this dog just drank and drank and drank and drank. He was so thirsty. And this is a little picture of God going after us. We're all bolters by nature, aren't we? We don't want to stay at our post. We lope off, and even the fact that the Holy Spirit is pursuing us seems to make us run farther and further from God. And then we get to a point where what began as freedom becomes something that entraps us, and we're so tightly wound up in something, we can no longer even escape from it. And God does not sit at home waiting and wondering when we shall return. He sent Jesus, his son, to go after us and find us. Even when we're too weak to bark, God hears the cry of the soul, the lament, the longing after him. And he comes and finds us and unwinds us and brings us home to drink of the living water. Jesus is the prophet with the powerful voice of God summoning you today to repentance. Listen to his voice because they are words of life that he is speaking. And Jesus is the priest who offers himself as the pure lamb of God to reconcile us to his father. Our penitence is not what reconciles us to God. It's the cross of Jesus Christ and what he has done there that gives us the confidence and security to return to God, knowing that he forgives us, he accepts us, and he welcomes us home. And like these poor desperate Israelites, we cry out to Jesus, please, Jesus, Do not cease interceding for us. And Jesus, Hebrews says, ever lives as our high priest at the right hand of God, powerfully praying and interceding for us, sleeplessly asking God to pour down grace on our behalf. Jesus never stops praying for you. Isn't that amazing? The light is always on in his room. And your name is always on his lips as he prays and prays powerfully on your behalf before God. And then Jesus, like Samuel, is the judge, not going on a tiny little circuit like Samuel does, but he comes and lives in our hearts to follow up on our repentance. So it's not just a one-time emotional crisis, but so that we do change, and we change permanently before God. The cross and the empty tomb are the Ebenezer that Jesus has raised for us. 
And when we look back at those things, the mighty acts of God on our behalf, what Jesus has done, faith rises in our hearts. Till now, God has helped us. This is the length that God was willing to go to save you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And of course, the point of that marker was not for mere historical interests, but so that in the future, any time Israel felt themselves desperate and alone and afraid, they could go back to that rock and be reminded, this is a God who always helps and saves those who return to him. And this is the logic we have when we look back on the cross and the empty tomb. If God was willing to give his son for you, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to love you to this point, surely he will love you to the very end. Because this Jesus, this prophet, this intercessor, this priest, this powerful king has promised to be with us forever, even to the end of the world. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we lay our hearts bare before you. And your eyes of fire see the secret and shameful things that we have hidden. And you know how we have hesitated between two opinions serving you, seeking you with half our hearts and the other half or even more belonging elsewhere. We pray that the spirit of your son would be poured out mightily upon us so that we can repent with our whole hearts, O Lord, and fix ourselves entirely upon you. You know our fear of repentance. We pray that we would hear the voice of our Father, who goes out to the road to meet the shameful Son returning. Not to rebuke and shout and humiliate, but to embrace, to welcome, to bring to the feast. Draw us close to yourself, O God, and give us this grace of repentance that we can experience deliverance. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.